Last week was Easter, which means we celebrated that a person who we believe to be God's son died and then three days later rose again. And for a moment, at the conclusion of our Easter service, you might have fully believed to the core of your being that all the story, all the parts of the story were true. Perhaps you were lucky and that feeling of certainty lasted for a day or a few. Perhaps for a day or a few you had faith the size of a mustard seed, faith that could move mountains. But I'm guessing if you're like most people, like all people I know, shortly after the service, you began to have some doubts. You began to have some doubts when you were reminded of that broken relationship that seems beyond repair, that stubborn addiction that just won't go away, that problem, that struggle that keeps you up at night. As much as you wanted to keep on believing that life and not death, life and not death has the last word, when you heard the news on Monday morning and were reminded of the harsh realities of life, of the world we live in, you likely began to have some doubts. Which is why the church, in all her wisdom, places this story about Thomas and the disciples and their doubts right after the story of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Some things, it appears, are just too amazing to believe. The book Children's Letters to God is full of prayers from children. Some of the prayers are cute, like, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) But this prayer book also contains prayers of surprisingly faithful confessions of faith. Prayers like, Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they each had their own room. That works well for me and my brother. Or, Dear God, Instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you have right now? And, dear God, are you real? Some people don't believe it. If you are real, you better do something, and quick. If you spend time around kids, even a little bit of time around kids in a faith setting, you'll realize pretty quickly that kids have no problem questioning things, questioning their parents, (laughs) questioning God, and questioning the bold and profound claims of our faith. Kids have no problem with questions or doubts, which makes me wonder, what happened to us, the adults in the room, that caused this questioning to change? My friend Mandy was 13 when she realized that some questions were better left unasked. She was in a Sunday school class at her friend's church when she questioned the validity of the resurrection. What ensued, she told me later, was a verbal barrage from some of the other children and adults in the room. If you don't believe that he died and rose again, you simply can't be a Christian, one of her peers said. Oh, I want to believe he died and rose again, she retorted, but sometimes it's just too hard, too big to get my head around. Well... It's not hard, her teacher replied, if you have faith. It's been my experience. I've talked to a lot of people in my office at coffee shops, but a lot of people come to me and share an experience much like this one. 
a time when they crossed some imaginary line they didn't know was there. They came to church or to a pastor or to a person of faith with questions, and their questions got swatted away like an annoying fly. They got rebuked, rebuffed by another person of faith. It appears that some questions for some people are too big and too awful and too scary to be uttered aloud, especially in a church. Well, as we seek to be, hope to be, an authentic, inclusive, and relevant congregation, we simply cannot be one of those places, one of those churches. If we want to be faithful to our mission and to our call, we have to welcome, I believe, and even encourage people's questions and their doubts. I realize there's a risk to letting people, especially children and youth, embrace questions and doubts. Encouraging questions can and does at times lead people away from the faith, but it's a risk we have to be willing to take. If we want a person's faith, our children's faith, our faith, to be real and authentic and not something they memorized or said to please someone they love. In a few weeks, 16 confirmands and their 16 mentors will complete a year of study and service with a confirmation banquet in Anderson Hall. A banquet where some of them, but not all of them, will profess a faith in Jesus Christ and then become official members of this church. And while I'm thrilled that some of our young people will embrace the faith, a faith in Jesus, I'm also thrilled, equally thrilled to be honest, that some of those kids won't. Because questions and doubts are just as important to us, a church, a community of faith, as our bold proclamations of faith. If the kids aren't there, I want them to be where they are, not where we want them to be. Just as we will be inspired by young people who embrace the faith and make it their own, we need to be equally proud of young people who are willing to trust us and God with their questions and their doubts. Today's passage from John, in my opinion, can be broken down into three scenes, three segments. The first is Jesus' encounter with the fearful disciples who are locked behind closed doors. The second scene is Thomas refusing to believe what the disciples have told them about Jesus. He won't see until he believe until he sees for himself. And the third scene is Jesus coming back to the room when Thomas is there and showing himself to all of them. It's an interesting pattern. There's doubt, and then Jesus shows up. There's doubt, and then Jesus shows up. There's doubt, and then Jesus shows up. This is the pattern of today's story, and I think it's the pattern also of our lives. Thomas' famous moment of doubt is bracketed by Jesus meeting the other disciples, the other followers, in their own disbelief. This is not just a story about Thomas, it's a story about us. Because before Jesus appears to the disciples, those 11, 10 guys were were also filled with questions of their own. Locked behind those doors, they were asking, did we pick the wrong guy? Is he really dead? What happened to the body? Now what are we supposed to do? How am I going to find work after this? Can I go home now? And it's into this fear, not faith, into this doubt, not certainty, into this questioning and not 
confidence. It's into all of that that Jesus comes. Thomas, of course, is not there when Jesus comes. He's out running errands. But he hears the good news later from his friends, but he's not able to believe it. He has his questions, his doubts, even though his best friends have told him altogether what they have seen. Thomas can't believe, and so he challenges God, saying, I'm not going to believe until I see Jesus for myself. And then something truly remarkable happens before Jesus even shows up. Something that I think often goes unnoticed in the story, but has something very important to say to us. Thomas expresses his doubt, and then he stays. A week later, he's still with his friends. The other disciples didn't feel the need to kick Thomas out of their club because he didn't believe. And Thomas Thomas certainly doesn't feel like he has to go because he has his doubts. Thomas stays with his friends in his community, and he waits for God to show up. This past week, my wife Amy and I visited with our friend and colleague, Alan Reimer, a pastor and one of the founders of a new church development called Farm Church. It's a new congregation in Durham, North Carolina, whose primary focus is feeding the hungry with fresh-grown produce. Farm Church gathers to worship in an urban garden center called Seeds, a nonprofit that serves families in Durham. In exchange for a free place to worship each and every Sunday, they worship in the common space. Immediately after church is over, after they sing and wrestle with the scripture passage for the day and have communion together, everyone in that congregation, young and old, continue their worship through planting seeds, tilling soil, pulling weeds, and building beds. When I asked Alan who, what kind of people were attending this radical departure from normal church life, who was attending farm church? They had no youth group, no Sunday school classes, no small groups. They just worship and farm and feed. So who's coming? Well, Alan told me, and I was surprised by his answer, although I should not have been. He said that nearly half of the 65 people who are on the rolls, if they even have rolls, do not profess a faith in Jesus Christ or even God. Nearly half have serious doubts about the faith in the church, but they still keep coming. They keep coming, they tell him, because they love the community of people that have gathered there, and they are passionate about feeding the hungry with good food. They may not believe in Jesus, but their actions speak to their longing for something more. One thing about Jesus becomes pretty clear the more you study the Bible. He never coerces anyone into believing in him. He doesn't twist people's arms or scare them with violent threats. He has no trouble with questions and doubts. And I wonder if this is because he knows from experience how hard it is to believe. Let's be honest, if you live fully and deeply, if you see the world as it is, not as you want it to be, but as it is, if you read the paper and let it all sink in, if you take seriously the promises of God and keep your eyes open, you're going to experience doubt. You're going to have your questions and you're going to have some concerns. Promises are made and then they are believed and then life is lived 
And sometimes the promises of God seem to not apply to us or to other people. And in response to all these inconsistencies, questions and curiosities and doubts will arise. And this is perfectly normal and wholly good. In his amazing book, Between the World and Me, that's a letter to his 15-year-old son, Ta-Nehisi Coates shares his struggle with our nation's failure to live up to its promise that all men are created equal. In his book, he openly questions and fails to find a satisfactory answer. He openly questions why this great nation with such high ideals consistently damages the bodies of black men and women. In the opening chapter of his struggle, he writes about his search for answers. My mother and father, he writes, were always pushing me away from second-hand answers, even the answers they themselves believe. I don't know if I have found any satisfactory answers of my own, but every time I ask the question, the question is refined. This is the best, he writes, of what the old heads meant when they spoke of being politically conscious. As much as a series of actions is a state of being, a constant questioning, questioning as ritual, questioning as exploration, not the search for certainty. Sometimes something is so hard to believe, so difficult to comprehend, so challenging to accept, given at times the difficulties of life, that it can only be received when approached with a posture of of questioning and doubt. Some promises are just too big to be taken hook, line, and sinker. In his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey makes the case that doubt, I love this metaphor, that doubt is that skeleton in the closet, the closet of faith, he argues, that skeleton that needs to come out of the closet and be brought out into the open and exposed for what it is. Not something to hide or to fear, but rather as the very structure, the framework, that a living, active, and vital faith grows. Instead of locking our doubts away, he argues, we need to give our doubts and our questions some light and some air. I'll be honest, I remain a Christian because of my doubts, not in spite of them. In my work, I see wonderful things, and I see horrible things. I struggle every day to make sense of a God who is good and all-loving and just, which I believe is true. I try to put that with what I see in the world and in your lives, difficulty, struggle, suffering, injustice, and pain. And whenever I wrestle with those two opposing realities, whenever I wrestle aloud with some claim about God that doesn't jive with my experience, whenever I struggle with some biblical story and its implications and express my doubts and my questions to my friends and my circle of faith, every time I do that, every time, in time, I experience God in some new way. Now this encounter with God that can be small or big It doesn't normally answer my questions. In fact, often it leads to more questions, better questions, deeper questions. But whenever I share my doubts with others on the journey of faith, who then, and this is the key, who then graciously receive 
my questions and fears. My doubts and my questions always lead to a deeper, more authentic expression of faith. Flannery O'Connor says it's best, says it best. When we get our spiritual house in order, she writes, we will be dead. This goes on, she continues. You arrive to enough certainty to be able to make your way, but it's making it in darkness. Don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It's trust, not certainty. Doubt, and then Jesus. Doubt, and then Jesus. Doubt, and then Jesus. This is the pattern of an active, vibrant faith. We all move from belief to disbelief. We all have times of faith and times of doubt. We have to in order for our faith to grow. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Oh, you're still awake. Thank you, Jesus. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Know this. Know this when you can believe it. And question this when you can't. Christ is risen. Christ is risen Keep proclaiming this together with both certainty and some skepticism. And then wait and watch to see what God can do with our faith and our doubts. Because together, I believe, they both honor and worship the God who promises to do amazing things. Things that are so difficult to believe without a little doubt mixed in. Amen.